Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles or your devices to what's going to be our sermon lesson this morning. God's word comes from John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 19 through 29. As I said, this is going to also serve as the basis for our sermon lesson this morning. So I want to encourage you, keep your finger in this page in your Bible, or maybe uh, keep your phone or your device near at hand. This is John chapter 20, continuation of the very first Easter. We begin at verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, Then Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is the gospel of our Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If the holy angels that surround the throne of God were capable of envy, they would envy you and me. They would envy you and me because we get to speak three of the most, if not the most meaningful, the most loving, and the most powerful words. The words 
a husband speaks to his wife. Maybe more often, a wife speaks to her husband. They're words that are spoken to people all the time. Spoken in families from from parents very often to children, but yes, even sometimes from children to parents. They're words that bond siblings together. These words make or break friendships. You hear them between boyfriend and girlfriend, employer, employee, coach, player, student, and teacher, really wherever people spend any meaningful amount of time. You hope to hear these words. Even hear them among strangers. And every single Sunday, you hear them at this church from your pastor. I forgive you. I said if angels were capable of envy, they would envy you because we get to speak these words, but angels, they can't envy, they can't be jealous. They're holy beings, they're with God, and so they don't envy you, but instead they rejoice. In fact, scripture tells us they let out loud hosannas, loud praises to God whenever one sinner says, yeah, that's right, I've made a mistake and I'm sorry and I know God forgives me. So think about it. If they do that for one, what happens when this group gathered here together all confesses their sin and together hears those words? What kind of praises, what kind of rejoicing is going on in heaven? That's why they watch and they listen intensely and they listen with great interest to what happens here. Were you? Were you listening? Were you listening to the words that, that we spoke when we started out worship together? And we didn't just say them this Sunday. We actually say these words or, or a variation on these words every single Sunday that we start out worship. It takes just a minute or two, but let me walk through the words that we said again. We said, beloved in the Lord. And we said that not just because we're in a sermon series called Beloved, but because that's who you are. Because when you walk in this place, there's a lot going on, but we see in the front a cross. And the cross lets us know that God loves you. You are his beloved. But the cross also tells you something about his love, that he died. And he died because, well, you and I have sin. And so we start out by saying, beloved in the Lord, let us approach God our Father in worship with openness, with honesty about who we are and who he is. And so we start out worship by getting real, by getting real vulnerable about something that's really going on. That's sin. The fact that we have a holy God and I'm not holy and I'm approaching him in worship. But you don't need to cower. You don't need to be afraid because look at who he is. He's your father. He has chosen to call you his son and his daughter. That is who you are. And so when we approach him, we can do this wild thing and confess our sins to God. 
I mean, who wants to do that? I don't. No one wants to admit that they are wrong. No one wants to admit that they have sin. They don't even want to use that word. No one wants to be needy. No one wants to go before God and beg him for his forgiveness. And yet we do just that. There's no, nothing more difficult than saying, I am sorry. Perhaps the only thing harder is admitting that we actually are. We all have masks. And now I'm not talking about these masks. I'm talking about the masks that we wear. The front that we put on so that people don't know us. Don't know us perfectly or, or who we are. We might say that we want to be understood, that we want to be known, but not fully. I mean, can you imagine that? If your children knew who you were completely, every thought, everything that you ever did, if your spouse, if your, if your coworkers, if your friends and family knew everything about you, we don't want that. But God does. God does want that and whether we like it or not, he knows all of that. And so we drop the masks. It's what we do when we confess our sins to him, but it's, it's okay. It's okay to do because when we come before him, we don't come alone. We come in someone else's name. We come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to ask that he give us forgiveness, forgiveness that you and I know has already been won. It's finished. It's over. Christ is risen. He's, he's risen indeed. Hallelujah. And so we do it. We do this wild thing. We come unafraid before God, our holy and merciful God, a holy God who cannot for a minute tolerate any sin, but at this very same time is our father and wants to do everything that he can to fix anything that breaks our relationship with him. And so we come and we do it. We confess that I am by nature sinful and that I've disobeyed God, not only in the things that I do, my thought, words, and actions, but even in the things I, I don't know that I do, the things that I thought were perfectly fine, the, the sins that I don't even remember, I confess those to him and I say it. I say that I deserve punishment. I don't compare myself to Hitler. I don't compare myself to the worst murderer or rapist. And I sure don't compare myself, even though I want to, to the people I came with who I'm, I know I'm a lot better than because you don't know, God, what I go through and you don't know what the kind of temptations I deal with. So look at them and look at me. It's a miracle that I'm as good as I am. No, we don't do that. We don't do that we confess that I deserve punishment. But, but, but I'm sorry. But I'm sorry, and I ask, trusting, believing, having confidence, having faith that, that Jesus Christ, who owns forgiveness, who owns the keys to life and death, gives it to me. And so we do it. We say, I... I'm truly sorry for my sins. And then you heard what I said, didn't you? There's an old Scottish proverb that you may have heard. It goes like this, confession is good for the soul. You've heard that, right? People, people 
accept it generally as true because they know that getting things off your chest, it fixes things, right? In relationships that you have and it, it in fact leads to emotional peace. But the confession that we're talking about, that God's talking about, that scripture's talking about, the words of forgiveness that we're talking about, they go way deeper than any relationship that you have with anybody on earth. It goes to your relationship with God. And the peace, it's, it's not just emotional peace. Yes, it is that, but it is so much more. It is spiritual peace. It's not just temporal peace. It's eternal peace. That is a peace that God gives you. Would you like a piece like that? I know I would. And so you might be wondering like, okay, if we have that, if that's ours in Christ, dude, why do you keep talking about confession and sin and repentance? Here's why. It's because I want you to appreciate how meaningful, how loving, how powerful those three words truly are. I forgive you. I want you to understand what's behind him. And so I've been praying for you this week. I've been praying for you and asking God that, well, this sermon renews or creates in you a new appreciation for those three simple yet very powerful words. I hope you leave here cherishing them like you never have before. I hope you leave here using them and love hearing them more than ever before. And so here's what we're going to do today. In the rest of our time together, we're going to look at those three words and we're going to take it from four different angles. We're going to ask four different questions about the simple yet super powerful words, I forgive you. We're going to ask, what do these words not mean? What do they actually mean? How do we abuse these words? And and really not just the words, but the whole concept of forgiveness. And fourthly, how do we actually use them and use them the way God wants us to? And here's what I'm gonna do. Somewhere in the middle of all that, I'm gonna make this really concrete for you, or at least I'm gonna try. I'm gonna make it concrete because, well, forgiveness it's kind of a idea. It's, it's so often for us a, a, an abstract concept that's hard for us to wrestle or wrap our hands around, especially when we have sin and have guilt. So we're going to try to make it concrete, but we're going to start with this question right here. What do these words not mean? It's just a few years ago that I was wrapping up worship and a guest, someone who had worshiped with us one or two times came up to me and invited me to go out and have cheeseburgers with him. And if you know how much I love cheeseburgers, you know that there's no way I'm turning that invitation down. So I go with him and we're enjoying a conversation, this gentleman and I over lunch. And this guy knows his Bible way better than anybody that I've ever sat down with before. He knows all about God's word. And we're having a fun conversation about scripture, about his life, about his story. And that's when he dropped his burger, looked at me, and in the nicest way possible, said, Pastor Matt, what gives you the right? What gives you the right 
to stand up in front of a group of people and tell them that you forgive their sins. You know what? You had a good point. Because it's not just this Sunday when we're talking about forgiveness. But every single Sunday that you come here, you can guarantee that I'm going to stand here and I'm going to lead us together to say words or to think about our sins and take them before God's throne. And then I'm going to stand up here and with a smile, every single Sunday, I'm going to look at every single one of you and I'm going to tell you that I forgive you. So it's a good question. What gives me the right to do that? What I told him is it's not a what, it's a who. Over lunch, I told him about John chapter 20 and Easter Sunday, the very first Easter, when Jesus appeared to his disciples and peace be with you. And he said, as God sent me, I'm sending you, go and forgive people's sins, announce it to them. And with a smile, the guy said, no. No, no, no. It doesn't say anything about doing that before a whole church full of people, Pastor Matt. I don't buy it. So I said, okay, what about Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus says the same words to his disciples using a figure, talking about the keys, opening the key to heaven and closing the key to heaven, giving forgiveness, not giving forgiveness. What about Matthew chapter 18, where it's obvious that Jesus is talking about doing this in, in the context of believers, in the context of church? He didn't budge. So we opened up our Bibles and I shared with him this passage from 2 Corinthians talking about everything that Christians have, all of the hope, all of the peace, all of the joy, all of the forgiveness, all of the righteousness that we have in Christ. And we read these three verses. I said, friend, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and get this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, get this, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He didn't buy it. And try, I tried to tell him that, I actually don't take away sins. Believe it or not, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the person who goes and grabs hold of the sins and removes them. Jesus did that. I'm just an errand boy. I'm just a messenger. I'm just an ambassador who stands up here and does exactly what Christ told me to do and just say, I forgive you because he forgives you. And that's when this gentleman who knew his Bible very, very well told me to do something that was very, very unbiblical. He said, Pastor Matt, stop it. <laughs> stop telling people, a room full of people that you don't know that they're forgiven. And I told him, no, I can't do that because Jesus told me to. And then I realized it, it wasn't about me it wasn't about me that 
he had the problem with of, of saying the forgiveness. It was about you and me. It was about all people. It was about himself because what he went on to explain was that he believed, mistakenly, that people have to do something to earn it. They have to do something to earn their forgiveness before anyone ever tells them. They have to say a little prayer. They have to make a decision and then make an announcement about it. They have to do X, Y, and Z to make up for their sins or at least prove that they're really genuinely sorry before you ever announce that they're forgiven. But that's not true. Because here's what these words do not mean. These words do not mean that I or you have done any work to remove your sins. First, it goes without saying that when I tell you I forgive you, that does not mean that I have come to you and I'm the one who grabs holds of your sins and Matt Rothy, a sinner, removes them. Jesus did that. Secondly, it does not mean that you did anything to take away your sins either. The Old Testament tells us that we're all like sheep and we've all gone astray. Isaiah 53. The New Testament tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were, we were like dead in our sins. Dead people, lost sheep, can't do things to, to make up for their sins. You and I have not done any work to remove our sins. But what these words do mean is that Christ did. Christ did all the work to remove your sins. Just think for a moment about the context in which God speaks the words in John chapter 20. It was on the evening of the first day of the week. In other words, Easter. It was on the very same day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead that he showed up to his disciples. And what's the very, very first thing that he said to them? Peace. Peace be with you. Do you understand happened in just the previous days. On Thursday night, Jesus Christ sat at a, at a table with all of the disciples and celebrated the Lord's Supper. That night, one of them betrayed him. The next morning, Peter betrayed him. Later Friday afternoon, all of them left him. They scattered, they left. So Jesus didn't just endure the pain of a crown of thorns, of whips, of getting nailed to a cross. He endured the pain of his best friends leaving him, deserting him. You call that sin. Betraying God. And what does he do? He says, peace. Peace be with you. And that might be an idea that modern American ears miss because we think of peace as just the, the ceasefire, just the civil rest. But peace to Hebrew ears, to, to those men's ears, to Jesus' disciples was so much more. It was shalom. It was the idea that everything in your life was good, that there is nothing, there's no beef between you and God. There's no obstacles, but everything, all your health, all your spiritual life, it is aligned, it is good. And the peace, the peace that God promised from, from long ago, when he said that he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought him pain, well, that, that was our peace. 
the announcement that the angels made in Luke chapter two, when they showed up and they said, glory to God in the highest and what? Peace, peace on earth to those whom God loves. That peace was no longer just a promise. It was present. It was theirs that God loves them. And he had totally taken away all of their sins. And that, that which God had sent Jesus for to remove those sins is what he was sending his disciples, you and I for as well, to announce that forgiveness. You wanna know what these words mean? What they mean is that Christ has done all the work to take away your sins. I forgive you means Christ's peace is with you. It means that God is good with you, that you are justified, you are declared right with him. Romans chapter five, for all who are justified in Christ, we have peace with him. What it means is that if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. And every time he went to go get a glass of milk, he would stomp and smile because he doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint. He sees you as his son and his daughter, as his beloved. And that's why these are the three most meaningful most loving and most powerful words that a husband can speak to a wife, that a wife can speak to a husband, a parent to their child, friends to one another, that God our Father has been merciful to us. Listen, he sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for all your sins. And so not me, it's not my authority, but it's by his authority. I forgive you. I forgive all your sins in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I forgive you. And do you know what happens when those words are spoken? You raise that person up right next to the throne of God because there's nothing between God and them anymore. There is only peace. There is peace and forgiveness in his name, full and free, complete, 100% forgiveness. That is yours. It is what scripture proclaims from the very beginning to the very end, from Genesis to Revelation, that you have it entirely. It is finished. It is yours. The cross won it. The empty tomb proves it. And now you get to live with it. You get to live with peace. I forgive you means that Christ's peace is with you. But it might not always feel like that, does it? Because even if you won't admit it out loud, even if you won't admit it to yourself, you feel the weight of sin. It's often hard to understand, isn't it? Because Forgiveness, it's somewhat of an abstract concept. So I said, I want to try to make this really concrete for you. Here's what we know about sin. We know that sin is really, really heavy. We know that it's a burden, right? We know that it stinks, that it's hard to carry. And so we're thankful that Christ took our sin, that Christ grabbed our sin from us and he carried up the weight, the full weight of our sins up to the cross. And he took it down into the grave and he buried it and he left it there. So I'm gonna show you an illustration 
I told you I said I'd make it concrete. Get it? Okay. Where we make sin something that we can understand and forgiveness as well. Because here's where the illustration limps. You can see those bricks, the concrete. But when it's with the cross and left at the cross, it means it's gone. It, it's no more. So you might ask, why are you talking about confession then? Why do I still sin? And what do I do with sin when I have it? Because it's still here. Well, I need some help kind of helping us understand what sin looks like and what forgiveness looks like. How are we going to answer these questions about how we abuse the concept of forgiveness and how we use these words? So I asked my friend Heidi to come up here and help me out. Heidi is going to come up here and Heidi's going to represent just your everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill sinner. So Heidi, thanks for being the representative for all of us. And here's what we know. When we sin, it's essentially picking up one of these bricks, something that Christ has removed, something that Christ has taken away. And yet when we sin, when we do wrong, when we do something opposite of what God's word says, it's like we pick it up all over again. And there's two ways that we abuse forgiveness. The first is that we don't care about sin. And the second, I'm going to get to in a second, is that we despair over sin. But the first is that I don't care about sin. And so, Heidi, would you sin? Would you grab a sin and take it? And essentially, that's what happens when we sin. We take a big, heavy weight of guilt and shame and wrongdoing, and we hold on to it, even though Christ took it away. And Heidi, because... She represents a normal, everyday, just run-of-the-mill sinner. She can carry that. She can carry it, even though it's kind of heavy, but she can't carry it for long. Imagine if she took that home with her. Imagine if she kept carrying it when she went to bed at night and was still carrying it when she got up in the morning. Imagine if she carried her sin with her when she got ready for work and had to tie her shoes if she took it to work with her and then brought it home to her family and friends. After a while, it would start to get pretty heavy. It would start to weigh on her and, well, maybe even crush her. And if she doesn't care about that sin, very likely, well, I won't give you another one, but you don't care about a lot of other sins either. And whether you admit it or not, it, it starts to weigh on you. Can you imagine what that does to a sinner personally, emotionally, not to mention spiritually, as eventually it builds up a wall. It builds up a wall that separates you from Christ. The first way we abuse the idea of forgiveness is we just don't care about sin and we hold on to it. So how do we use these words? Well, what happens when Heidi realizes that it's too heavy for her to carry? What happens when Heidi says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I confess my sins. You don't wait a second. You say, Heidi, I forgive you. Your sins are gone. Jesus took that away. Give it back to him. Get rid of it. Don't hang on to that guilt. Don't hang on to that shame any longer. You're forgiven. Do you see what that does? That literally takes a weight 
of sins off them, not because I'm so holy or because I'm somehow the one who took it away, but because Christ already did that for her. That's the first way that you can abuse the idea of forgiveness is not care about sin, but that's how you use it to immediately give them forgiveness. But real quick, here's the second way. Sinners, and especially those who who get the idea, the concept of sin, don't really not care about sin, but they despair over sin. Heidi, would you sin again? (laughs) Often what happens is sinners take hold of a sin, they do something wrong, and they know it. And yet they think, there's no way that, that anybody, if they knew about this, would, would love me. There's no way that, that God could really forgive me for this. And so needlessly, they walk through life holding on to something that they don't have to. So we abuse this idea of forgiveness when we despair over our sin And that's why it's important. That's why it's important to say these words. Christians, that's why it's important for those of you who have been sent, who have been given the Holy Spirit to speak words of life, words of freedom, words that literally lift the weight and guilt of sin off of people and say, not, nah, it's all good, Heidi. Nah, it's cool. Not, ah, we're good but I forgive you. Get rid of that. Don't hold on to that a second longer. Set it down because Christ has forgiven you all of your sins. That's how you use those words. And that's why it's important to not only find people in your life, friends, family, a church, a pastor who speaks those words to you, but it's important for you to speak those words as well. Would you give Heidi a round of applause? Thanks, Heidi, for being up here. On September 6th, 2018, Amber Geiger drove home from work. And if you recognize her name, you might recognize the story I'm about to tell you. Amber Geiger was a police officer for the Dallas, Texas police. And when she drove home to her apartment, she walked up to her apartment door but it was the wrong apartment. It was the one directly below her. And when she stepped inside and she saw a man in her apartment, a man whose name is Botham Jean, this police officer took out her weapon and fatally shot Botham, a young man, age 26, who had just gotten off of work a few hours earlier and was enjoying a bowl of ice cream on his couch. The story is remarkably tragic because of what occurred, because it's something that happens in the world that we live in. But the story is remarkable for another reason. It's remarkable because of what occurred at the trial of Amber Geiger. After Amber was convicted for murder, the crime she committed, and she was sentenced, Botham's younger brother, Brant, took the stand. Brant sat there on the stand, and he began a short speech by saying what he wouldn't do. 
He wouldn't say anything that had already been said throughout the trial. He said he wasn't going to say anything that rehearsed the events that took place. But instead he said the three most meaningful, most loving, most powerful words that could be said. I forgive you. He looked right at the woman who took the life of his brother and he said, I forgive you. And just so he made sure that he wanted everyone there to know what those words meant and what those did not mean, he followed that up by saying this, I forgive you. And I want you to know that, that God forgives you. And I love you like I would love any other person. Anyone on to say even more? He went on to say even more so that nobody, including Amber, abused the idea of forgiveness or, or misunderstood it. Here's what he said. He said this, and I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to say that I hope you rot in jail. I'm going to say that I personally want the best for you. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want what's best for you and the best is that you give this to Christ. He's telling him to take that brick and give it back to Christ. Can you imagine the concrete weight that Amber must have carried with her for doing murder, for holding that guilt and that shame? And what did Brant say? I forgive you. Give that to Christ. He said something more. He looked at the judge and he said to the judge, ma'am, may I give her a hug? Please, please. And then with a spring in his step, Brant jumped off the stand and he walked down and with a sob, Amber stood up and they embraced. They embraced there in front of the judge's seat. And if you haven't seen the video, go Google it because it's moving. And I told you my goal. My goal was that this sermon would move you to, to never see those words again. And I don't know if this video will make you think about forgiveness differently, but I know that these words make all the difference. That Christ said, peace be with you. I forgive you means Christ's peace is with you. And I'm sending you to say that to others. I don't know what's on your heart, but I do know this. I forgive you. Amen. 